0: It's always a pleasure and a privilege to preach God's word, especially in a local church. Having been a pastor of a church for um, 36 years, you grow to love the church wherever it finds its local expression. And so I am privileged to come here, not just once, but three times in the next five weeks, to be able to speak to you about the church. And I wanna begin by asking you a question. How do you think society sees the church? Way back in 1975, two pastors whose names are household names today Uh, one on the east coast in the states, one on the west coast. Uh, You know one church is Bill Hybels Willow Creek Church and the other one was uh, Saddleback Church when Rick Warren. They didn't know each other at that time. They both were fresh out of college and they both wanted to plant churches to reach people who didn't go to church. And so they took six months to do a survey in their respective neighborhoods and though they were separated by 2,000 miles or so, they came up with the same four common objections to why people, or the reasons why most people didn't bother with church. They they're always asking for money, number two, they make you feel guilty, the sermons are irrelevant to life, and the church is full of hypocrites. Well, they went ahead and addressed these issues, and today both are very large mega churches. but many, many years later, in 2008, Lifeway Research uh, did another survey about 1,400 adults who, for the last six months, had not been to any religious service, whether they were Jewish or Christian or whatever, and them the same kind of questions, and 72% of that survey said that they think the church is full of hypocrites. So that piece hasn't changed in quite a long time. And sometimes inside the church, I wonder too. Not too long ago, speaking at a conference center, I happened to have a conversation with an audiovisual person near the end, uh, before the service, and uh, happened to reconnect with an old friend whom I hadn't seen for a long time, who now was volunteering in the AV ministry in his church. And... As the conversation developed, he happened to tell me how on one particular Sunday, uh, an usher in that church literally punched him out. This was inside a local church before a morning service. So I think we're maybe doing our part to help promote this perspective uh, that the church is full of hypocrites. And I'm part of it, so don't get me wrong. I've seen in my ministry people uh, leave the churches for all kinds of reasons. One person walked out with his entire family because his wife wasn't chosen to be the organist in those days when organs were still part of churches. Another person ministering in a children's church ministry when encouraged to maybe find another area of ministry because maybe her gifting was in a different area, rather than do that, chose to leave the church. By the way, it's always been like that. If you go back and read in the Bible, many of the letters that that the Apostle Paul wrote, that form a large part of the New, what we call the New Testament, were written to local churches. And one in particular, the church to the Corinthians, would make your hair stand on end. Because from beginning to end, here were the list of problems that the Apostle Paul addressed. There were issues like uh, divisions, factions, lawsuits, sexual immorality, pride, spiritual pride, a judgmental attitude towards others, and on and on the list went. From the very beginning, it seems the visible church wasn't very much to write home about. At the same time, however, in this survey that was done, 78% of the people who said the church was full of hypocrites said, we be happy to listen to a Christian explain what they believe. And so if there are some of you here this morning, maybe five, ten people, I don't know, who don't consider yourself followers of Jesus, maybe you're wrestling with the fact that the church does have hypocrites in it, uh, Thank you for coming, giving me an opportunity to explain what Christians believe, specifically about this thing called the church. That's what I want to talk about for the next three times that I'm going to be here with you. And in order to understand how I'm approaching it, I want to share with you a little bit about how God does motivation in the scriptures. He doesn't do it primarily through exhortation, although he does exhort. He doesn't primarily through rebuke, although there's rebuke. He doesn't do it primarily through instruction, although there's plenty of instruction. But the way that instruction is aimed, he does it first and foremost by building in us two things, a sense of identity and destiny. Who are we and where are we headed? And then when those things are firmly in place, the exhortations follow and they make sense. Because they're not disjointed, random commandments that have been sprinkled out here and there. They're all linked to our identity and to our destiny. And so, in attempting to understand the church, we want to look at it first and foremost the way God sees the church. And that's what I want you to look at upon. Identity and destiny, those two things that emerge. Use those two words to track through the sermon today, okay? And perhaps Ephesians is better suited than almost any other book. It's like, it was a circular letter. Paul intended for it to be read by many churches. And in that, he unpacks for us this divine perspective. Now, Paul happens to be in the house arrest when he's writing this message. And he's looking out at a world that in itself is hopelessly divided. But he also sees the church, fairly small, Small little communities sprinkled throughout Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. But arrayed against it are four massive forces. There was, of course, Rome. The Roman Empire dominated. Rome's pursuit of its glory through the exercise of sheer power and might was an everyday reality. Even their buildings testified to that. Then there was the second force of Greek intellectualism. Greek philosopher, Greek intellectualism, the Greeks considered everybody else barbarians. If the Romans considered everyone else weak, the Greeks considered everyone, including Romans, barbarians. And then, of course, there was uh, Judaism, which relentlessly persecuted this new sect called Christianity. And they were zealous and powerful. Only their zeal was driven by what they understood to be their faith in Jehovah. And then, There was another equally powerful force, but it was all underground. Ephesus was also the center of the worship of Diana, Artemis, the goddess of the underworld. And so there were these four huge forces, Roman military might, Greek intellectual might, Jewish religious might, and the goddess of the underworld, demonic might, all arrayed against this tiny little thing called the church, so insignificant, so powerless it would seem. And so Paul writes Ephesians to say, this isn't all. (laughs) This, like the iceberg, is the top one-ninth. Reality is below the surface, in this case, in what he calls the heavenly realms. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says this. We are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, what are the heavenly realms? When we think of heaven, we almost always smuggle in a concept of matter and space continuum. The heaven is kind of out there. If you go far enough there, you'll kind of find it. You know. Don't say it in those words. But that's the idea we smuggle. But that's not what heaven is at all in terms of scriptures. It's a different dimension altogether. It swallows up all of space. In Hebrews chapter 12, when the apostle, whoever wrote, if Hebrews is describing Christian worship, he says, you haven't come to Mount Sinai with its trembling and its fire and shaking and all those things. He said, that's all visible reality. He says you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn. In other words, right now, my brothers and sisters, as we are gathered here to worship, there is all around us an invisible reality, not somewhere way out there, but if you knew it only that far away in another dimension, a massive host of people and angels worshiping Jesus. And we're part of that. That's the heavenly realm that he talks about. It's the invisible reality that we stack up against the visible reality. And before we can function in visible reality like we should, we need to understand invisible reality. That's why Paul doesn't get to the practical exhortations in Ephesians until chapter 4. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore, because of what I'm going to tell you in the first three chapters, therefore you need to live like this. So if we forget the therefore, we won't live that way, or at least we won't be able to do it with any meaning and significance. Oh, a modern day clamor for practical. Hey, be practical. Give me, give me something practical to do. Don't bother me with theology. Which is why we fail miserably in the practice. Because it is not rooted in these invisible realities. It's what gives us the meaning, the why to do. As opposed to the how and the what to do. Five times in this book, that phrase heavenly um, realms comes in. And I just want to... Chapter one, two, and three, and then chapter six. The practical stuff is squeezed in between those two. So that's what I want to unpack for you this morning. And so he begins to explain in the rest of the book these spiritual blessings that we've been blessed with. So let's read from chapter 16, chapter one, verses 16 to 23. I'm gonna read slowly, just get the flavor of it. Paul writes, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He said that's, that's invisible reality. That's the first thing about this blessing in the heavenly realms I want you to understand church that you have Jesus as the head of the church. Head over all rulers, all powers, all principalities. Rome, Greece, Judaism, Diana of the underworld. He's far above all of those things. And here's the key point. He is given to you and me the church as head over all things. That's the first thing about us we need to know, that the church is a demonstration of the immeasurable greatness of Christ Power. What would happen if we saw ourselves like that? Warts and all, shortcomings and all. The way God sees the church, she has as her head this person who is over every power, every title, everything it could be named in heaven, in earth, or under the earth. That's the first thing He wants to grasp. And then he continues in chapter two, which by the way, in the original Greek, there's no chapter division. So he's actually continuing on this theme of power. Uh, And this power is demonstrated, he says, in two ways. In chapter two, verses one to seven. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, you know, in the original it says, but God comes together. Martin Lloyd Jones once preached a whole series of sermons on the two words, but God. <laughs> This is what it was like, but God. And look what God did. He said, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. In our natural condition, you and I, every human being, are born dead. Of course, we have physical life. We have the abilities to do everything that relates to this horizontal dimension. But when it comes to spirit life, that within us that is capable of responding to God and responding to the things of God, we were dead. That's our natural condition. But look what God did. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And then he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. There it is again in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So this power that is given to us, the power that God exerted in Jesus when he raised him from the dead and gave him to the church as head over all things, that power, he says, is demonstrated in two ways. First of all, it is the power that takes dead people and makes them alive. You know, we we think salvation was such an easy thing. And in one sense, it is easy. We receive Jesus, we acknowledge that we are sinners, we need a savior, so easy that a child can pray. But from another perspective, it is unbelievably hard. It requires nothing less than the illuminating power of God to awaken us. I became a Christian at the age of 17. And my parents, from the same background that I was, who heard that gospel for decades, it was 41 years before my dad finally gave his life to Christ and my mother passed away this last year without ever having committed her life to Christ. It isn't easy from another perspective. Because when you're dead, you can't see. You can't do anything. It took God's power to raise us. That's the first thing, it took all of the power of God. If you're here and a follower of Jesus, you are a living demonstration of the incredible power of Jesus in your life, already. He didn't do it by some simple act of intellectual consent, although that was involved. And then the second thing which we will not read today, if you read in chapter two you will find, he also took the Jewish-Gentile divide and made of Jews and Gentiles one body in Christ. So there was both the power shown in individual salvation and in the creation of the body. And we see today people from so many different tribes and languages in one place. That's a demonstration of the power of Christ. But it is also, he says, a demonstration of the riches of his grace. Which he says in the coming ages, he's gonna display that. You know, we, just like we, we take the have very little understanding of how much power it took to make us Christians or to enable us to believe, we also minimize the grace of Jesus. And that is because we minimize or don't have a good sense of the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. It's the only attribute of God that is repeated thrice in the scriptures and is on two occasions. Once Isaiah in the Old Testament and Revelation in the New There is no wisdom, wisdom, wisdom passage in the Bible. No love, love, love passage in the Bible. God's holiness is not just one of his attributes. It is the foundational attribute of God. Everything else is holy. If it's love, it's a holy love. If it's mercy, it's a holy mercy. God's in a class by himself, including, including unapproachable, blazing, holy purity. We don't understand what, what, what allows a God who's like that to forgive sinners. Yeah, we sing about the grace of Jesus, and rightly so. It is all grace. We celebrate this awesome Redeemer. But have you ever asked yourself, what allowed God to still be holy and yet love people like me, you and me who have rebelled against him? It's grace. It's the incredible grace of Jesus when he died on the cross for us. So much so, that he says it will take the coming ages. It was something that only recently struck me even though I've been studying the Bible for 55 years. He said this grace is so immense that it will take ages and ages and ages for God to unpack to these principalities and the powers what it really was. The other thing that we read in this passage is that he made us alive, he raised us with Christ, and it says he seated us with Christ. What did we read in the first chapter? Jesus has been raised far above all principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness and every title that can be given, right? That's where Jesus is. Now, if that's where Jesus is and you and I are seated with Jesus, where does that put us? Far above all principalities, rulers, spiritual wickedness, all of it. Did we ever see the church like that? you ever see yourself occupying that regal position? Not only having Jesus who is head over all things as given to the church as head over all things, but you and I made alive in Christ and raised with him and seated in that same position of spiritual authority. What would happen if we saw each other like that? Might change the way we look at each other, right? And then he continues in chapter three. His intent was that now, through the church, there it is again, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. There is the heavenly realms once again. Invisible reality once again. And visible reality is this fractured, structured church with all of its problems and challenges. What does the invisible church look like? Not only a demonstration of the greatness of his power and the riches of his grace, but also of his manifold wisdom. The word manifold here is used... Uh, For example, of the uh, incredible beauty and embroidery of of carpets, for example. And many of us have seen those oriental carpets, maybe even bought one home with us. The intricate patterns that are woven into the, the multifaceted glory of these things. They are used of richly embroidered garments. And the Apostle Paul uses that language to say that that's what the church is like. She is a refraction of the multifaceted wisdom of God so that it's like white light can be refracted by a prism and broken up into the seven colors of the rainbow. He said the church is like a prism that manifests to the principalities and the powers, the heavenly cosmic audiences, the wisdom of God. The very existence of the church makes people gasp, because we shouldn't. Remember those four massive realities and this tiny little thing called the church? We shouldn't be around 1,900 years later, but we are. It's a demonstration of the power, grace, and the wisdom of God. I hope you're getting at least a little bit excited that this is your identity. Paul continues by the usage of many metaphors in these first three chapters. And so I wanna touch on them because they continue to build this sense of both identity and one destiny in particular. First of all, he speaks of us as a body. And each of these metaphors, and in the next message, I'll amplify on some of these a bit more. I just want to touch on them today. In each of them, he reinforces one idea of organic connection. If we're a body, every part of it is organically connected to every other. If you remove this arm and put it aside by itself, it's not really an arm anymore. It has to be connected to the rest of the body. Uh, And the connection has to be organic, not just mechanical. You can't just take a severed arm and just bind it with some string or nail it with some staples. It has to be connected through the veins and the nerves and all that. Then secondly, he talks about a family. And a family is organically bound in a different way. They have the same father, same mother. And so while the connection doesn't look mechanical, brothers and sisters are connected to each other in a way that we're not connected with other people. There's an organic connection. And then thirdly, he talks about a temple. And this one I want to read briefly. In uh, chapter uh, 2, verses 19 and 20, we read these words consequently you're no longer foreigners and aliens he's now talking about the corporate body remember we talked earlier on about how the power of God Jesus has shown in the salvation of individuals and in the forming of the body he says consequently you're no longer foreigners and aliens but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household Gentiles and Jews built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Now, here he has a metaphor of a temple, not just a body, not just a family, but a temple. And the foundation of the temple, the cornerstone, was the most important because the whole building got its bearings from that cornerstone. They've discovered cornerstones, stones that are 37 foot long as a cornerstone. Jesus is that cornerstone. Chief cornerstone. Then the apostles and the prophets. The Old Testament, the New Testament are the foundation. And you and I, each one of us are living stones that are being built together. And this whole temple rise up and God is dwelling in that temple. Now, this, this theme of God dwelling with his people in a temple is actually carried on right through the scriptures. And the church is the culmination of that. Way back in Genesis, we saw the first temple. It was the garden where God showed up and walked with Adam and Eve. They enjoyed intimate communion with God face to face. Human sin, of course, got in the way. God drove them out, and then the next manifestation was when God redeemed his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, which was a powerful paradigm of our redemption from the slavery of sin. And he said, Moses, build them a temple because I will dwell with you. And when that, temp- when that uh, tabernacle, the movable temple was built, The place was filled with the glory of God when they finally accomplished. And that represented, that holy of holies represented the very concrete presence of God. So much so that people couldn't just waltz into the presence of God, they would be struck dead. Only one man, the high priest, could go only one day on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and only with the blood of an animal into the presence of God and then come out quickly until next year. Well, that temple was eventually replaced when uh, David first and Solomon eventually built the permanent temple. And when that was dedicated by Solomon, again, the Holy God came in and the glory of God filled that temple. That temple was then destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 AD. And eventually when the Jewish people came back from exile, they rebuilt a much less glorious version of that temple until Herod the Great built them that magnificent temple, which was the temple that was in existence when Jesus came on earth. And then when Jesus, you remember, finally left that temple and said, behold, your house is left to you desolate, uh, foretelling the complete destruction of the temple in AD 70 by the Romans. Because Jesus said, now the temple is new. It's no longer a building. It's you people. I'm the chief cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the foundation. And every follower of Jesus is a stone. And we all build together. Jesus lives with us. What a beautiful picture. So no more buildings are sacred. But when you and I get together, we're here. And so all of a sudden, God shows up here when we all show up. Because we're the temple. We're being put together. And so when we are together, we are the movable temple all over the place. And we can see and expect the glory of God. That's how beautiful he sees us. So we are a body. We are a family. We are a temple. And then perhaps the most beautiful of all, we are a bride. In chapter 5, verse 25 to 27, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. (laughs) You know, up till now, we've been focusing on identity, who we are. We are a demonstration of the riches of his grace, the greatness of his power, and a demonstration of the manifold wisdom. We are a body. We are a temple. We are a family. Uh, we're a bride. But my goodness, look at the destiny. He's going to make us perfect. You know, as a, as a pastor, I've done so many weddings. And so I've gone through many rehearsal days and wedding days. The bride on rehearsal day doesn't look like the bride on the wedding day. She looks pretty frazzled, she's got her hair up, dressed in jeans, probably upset with their fiance for forgetting something important, whatnot. But then comes that moment when the music changes to the processional, the doors open, and she walks in radiant in her beauty and her glory. Nobody's looking at the groom anymore, right? She's the center of attention what a picture of our destiny yes we have all these problems and challenges and we don't minimize that but that's not where paul starts he said i want you to see who you are and what you're going to become i hope you continue to be excited folks this is our destiny doesn't matter don't let our weaknesses get ourselves down this is what we're going to be made radiant and jesus is doing it and he's head over all things so does it mean that anybody can stop him if you are head over all things and given to the church, and you have made the church alive and have seated her with you far above all principalities and powers, and you have one agenda to make her holy and radiant because you're going to present her to yourself on a magnificent marriage supper, who can stop him? That, should give up, that gives me hope in my worst moments. Both personal failures and church failures. So this is how God sees the church. Put them all together. He sees the church as the demonstration of the incomparable greatness of his power, the immeasurable riches of his grace, and his manifold wisdom. Now, do you see the church like this? Probably not. You know why? Because it's hard. And the reason it's hard is one more factor that is true of the heavenly realms. So far, we only covered chapters one, two, and three. Now Paul's gonna jump to chapter six, and he says, we have a problem because we have an enemy. Yes, we are seated above all principalities and powers, but that doesn't mean they are dead powers. We are in 24-7 war. We are not in peacetime. We are in warfare. The Christian life will never make sense. The exhortations will never make sense unless we understand first and foremost that we are not and never will be at peace in this world. Imagine what would happen if Canada was suddenly attacked by a foreign air. Life would change, folks. You would change, your expectations would change, life would get harder. You would expect every person around you to behave in a way that is appropriate to the fact that we're in warfare. If people are busy looking after them, their own private interests in a time of war, you would speak to them, a whole neighborhood would converge upon them. That's what happens in wartime. What would happen to us as Christians if we saw that we were at war and we're not at peace? we just options called church and giving and this, that, and the other. We have an enemy. In chapter six, we read these words, just an extract. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Why? Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, not if the day of evil comes, when the day of evil comes, which means challenges will come to us individually and corporately, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, stand. The place of blessing is the place of warfare. Chapter one, verse three began with, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm, right? And then he unpacked that for us. And chapter six, that same heavenly spheres, the place of blessing, is the place where you have your fiercest enemy. Why is Satan so desperately opposed to the church? He hates the church. You see, because Jesus gave the church what he wanted. Theologians believe that Isaiah fourteen and ezekiel twenty eight contain two portions. There are powerful poetic descriptions of Lucifer and all of his glory before he rebelled and was expelled from heaven. He wanted to make himself like God. He wanted to ascend the throne. He wanted to sit on the throne. And God took ordinary mortals and gave them that privilege by making people who were dead in their sins and trespasses alive in Christ raising them with Christ seating them with him making the church far above all principality and powers and so he hates the church he cannot get at Jesus anymore so he's going to go after the bride and you know what he doesn't take any vacations no sundays off no two week vacation breaks that's why i said we're in warfare not with people people are not enemies political people with different political views are not enemies people from different religions are not our enemies They're all our friends. We're all in it together. No, no, we have one enemy, the principality, the forces of darkness. And so we need to fight against them, not against each other. Not against the world. We need to fight against them. And so for that, we need the whole armor of God. So our enemy is Satan. By the way, his primary strategy is division through deceit. Remember that. Don't get too upset if there's sickness all of a sudden. People look for Satan behind every bush. Look for him wherever there is deceit and division. His name, he's called the father of lies, and he divides people from the very beginning. He got a hold of Adam and Eve through deceit, and put a division between the first couple. Division is his goal, deception is the strategy. What is our strategy? Our strategy is prayer, because we are told by Paul to put on all these weapons, and then he names the weapons, and then he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. So, he shifts from a noun where he describes the six weapons, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, and then not just prayer as a noun, it changes to a participle, praying. Grammatically that means, prayer is the means by which we mobilize the weapons, by which we put on the weapons and by which we launch the weapons. Intercession becomes absolutely foundational to this. And it was driven home to me in a way fairly early on in my ministry that just kind of ch- changed the direction of my ministry. And remember in chapter one, Paul talks about uh, these incredible blessings that are ours in the heavenly realms. He then says, for this cause I am praying. Ever since I heard about you, I thank God for you, but I pray that you may be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better, that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you may know. You may know the hope of your calling. You may know your identity. You may know your destiny. The reason that struck me was Paul was writing Scripture. Ephesians is Scripture. Now, Paul, while he was writing these truths, it almost looked like he stopped and said, "Uh uh-uh, they're not going to get it. There's no way these people are ever going to get it. Oh, God, have mercy on them. Please give them wisdom and revelation. I better pray that you will open their eyes. <laughs> if that was what was Paul's situation, what hope did I have as a human preacher that the people that I'm speaking to would ever understand anything, let alone me. Me, I to understand it first. We can't. Human speech has no power to persuade people. Even when the speech is scripture given by God, Because we're dealing with principalities and powers. We're dealing with spiritual blindness. We're dealing with an incredible force of darkness. So Paul says, I pray, unless God opens your eyes, you'll never be able to see this destiny. So I can preach. I can preach my heart out. I can prepare like I have. I can be eloquent. I can use whatever gifts God has given to me. But unless I brood it in prayer and say, God. So I did it this morning. I didn't come here with any illusions of my ability to persuade you of anything. I got on my knees before God and I pleaded with Him again for me and for you to open the eyes of our understanding. So prayer becomes our fundamental strategy. We pray in the Spirit which means we're asking the Spirit to help us to pray. Do that regularly. If you're having struggle in your prayer time invite the Holy Spirit to come and help you because Romans says the Spirit of God teaches us how to pray. And he that searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit is already praying according to the will of the Father. So we better, really praying is asking to be invited into a heavenly prayer meeting that's already going on between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so ask for that. And then pray with, for, with the Spirit and pray for the Spirit. In Ephesians 5, verse 18, he says, be filled, keep on being filled with the Spirit of God. And so one of the things we need to pray for is the various works of the Spirit in our lives. And I mentioned, I mentioned four of them because they've come from the text. So this is by way of recap. First of all, Paul tells us in chapter 1 that we have been seated with Christ uh, in the Spirit. And he has asked us to uh, that God will give us the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. So we need to pray for the Spirit of wisdom and revelation that we will understand these truths. Just hearing this one sermon is not going to be enough. Maybe for some of you, you'll need to get the tape of this. Not because I had any great messages to say, but because this is God's word speaking to you. And maybe you need to say, God, open my eyes. Help me to understand. Secondly, we are being built together together. As a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit, we need to pray that God will be present here. You should be praying all week long, and I don't mean from morning to night. We all have jobs to do. I understand that. What I mean by that is, don't just show up on a Sunday without once having prayed for Andy and his team and whoever is preaching, because they're not going to be able to do what you need if the Spirit doesn't help them. Anybody can put together songs, like anybody can preach. With a few mechanical gifts and skills that we have. And they are a skilled team. They did, But how, you saw the songs they chose? I didn't tell them what I was preaching on very generally. You see how everything dovetails? Only the spirit can do that. So you need to come here. If you want to receive from them, which you should be coming. If you want, pray that God will show up. Pray that God will be with them. During the week as they're putting their services together. Call, call them. If, you, if your passion is worship, call the worship pastor and say, how can I pray for you this week? If your passion is the word of God, call the preacher and say, how can I pray for you this week? Because that's a fundamental strategy. Pray that God will show up. And then in chapter three, we are being strengthened with power in our inner being by the Spirit so we can love one another. So we need to pray that the Holy Spirit of God will come into our hearts, strengthen us, give us faith so we can love one another in the body of Christ so the world outside will look at us and say, ooh, they're not hypocrites, my goodness. They're real, they're not pretenders, but they sure know how to love one another. And then lastly, we are armed with the sword of the Spirit. We need to pray that God's word will be alive in us so in our prayers we can resist the Holy Spirit, resist with this Holy Spirit the work of the enemy as he attacks us. All right? We can actually do that right now. As I bring this message to a close, I'd love to pray these prayers for you and for myself. Join me as we pray. Father God, once again, I just thank you so much for people who come to listen. I mean, people come with expectant hearts and here we are struggling our best to make it worth their while. But I thank you so much that you have delivered us forever from having to perform for people. Uh, We come as broken human beings with no greater access to power than they have. Servants called by God in grace to be his chosen instruments. So will you take whatever I have said today that is actually from you, And will you just intensify that by the work of the Spirit? Lord Jesus, you said, I gave the Spirit that he will remind you of all things. So will you do that work of reminding? Something somewhere might have touched their hearts today. I pray that you will remind them of it, Father. Remind them of that identity. Remind this church of its identity and of its destiny going forth. Whenever church life gets difficult, in board meetings, in staff meetings, in community meetings, in outreach centers, in in, in the kitchen, whatever it is, Father. Whenever life gets difficult in the body, I pray that the Spirit of God will remind them that they are a demonstration of the riches of your grace, the greatness of your power, your manifold wisdom. They are a body, they are a family, they are a built temple, they are a bride, and you are making them holy and radiant in Jesus' name.